Hi, folks. I'm radical Nazi phenomenologist Lehman Pascal, and today we're diving into Heidegger for a time between worlds. What does this notorious and brilliant thinker still have to tell us as we drift further into the age of the metacrisis? Are some of his insights still applicable to the higher, deeper, and healthier world that our hearts are trying to create? And where do his verbal formulations touch things like non-duality, developmental praxis, and the unfolding of more authentic human beings? Here to help us with this is a guy who, due to my lazy speech-to-text app, shows up in my calendar as Steve Heidegger. It's Aletheia's own Mr. Stephen March. Hi, Steve. <laughs> hey, Lehman. <laughs> glad to be here. And glad to be talking about Heidegger, although um, as we were just riffing before we hit record, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, a sort of a dubious uh, endeavor to talk about Heidegger. His work is so vast and, uh, you know, uh, easy, easily misinterpreted. So um, we will do our best to uh, make Heidegger relevant here and, uh, and encourage people into their own study of it. Well, that's one of the things I really respect about his work is that it's it's like a thicket you have to hack your way through, uh, which which is the thing that puts people off a lot. But, you know, what you get out of them, what you get out of anybody, I think, is not so much your assimilation of their conclusions, but a set of skills you build up by tangling yourself with them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, you know, the, the joke uh, in Heidegger studies is Heidegger is untranslatable even into German. And um, of course, he was writing in German, but even in his own language, he was inventing words and pulling up words that were, you know, old German words that had been sort of lost in common usage and pulling them back and, you know, um, and, and trying to resuscitate them and things like that. But it's true, um, especially if you tr if you read Heidegger and recognize that what he's really trying to do is he's trying to point to the everydayness of things in a way that is right here and, 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 and available in this very moment, but in a way that has sort of faded into the background or withdrawn from our awareness or, or been concealed in some kind of way. Things like, what is it to be a human being, right? Or what is it to be at all? Um, that he's talking about those things. And if you put the book down after reading something and then actually practice phenomenology, if you actually practice and say, well, how is what he's talking about in this bizarre language that he has constructed to try to say something that is almost unsayable about something that is withdrawing from our awareness and understanding, and then actually pay attention to what's here, you actually start to enter into the world that we're already living in as if it's something fresh. And I actually think that's one of the reasons that I've been inspired by Heidegger, because in my work as a teacher and in my work as a coach and consultant, a lot of the times what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help my clients see the world, the world they already live in, uh, see themselves, the person that they already are, in some kind of a fresh way. And so his work is really relevant because it kind of it, it's a, it's like a it's like a grinding stone that you sharpen this capacity against again and again and again. And if you try to approach his work as this sort of conceptual body of of work and try to just tackle it conceptually, 
I don't know, maybe somebody can succeed at that, but I've never met them. I just don't think that that's even possible. And I would question whether it's even useful. There's, uh, there's an element of resistance that I thought of when you mentioned that, because I was thinking about like what I most admire about Heidegger is, is the granularity of his explorations. He, it's like he wants to put aside conventional understandings of knowledge and crawl around like a blind creature in a cave describing the textures and shapes of the things that he's finding. He doesn't take knowledge for granted. He wants to explore freshly, but that mm. risks uh, a sense of pointlessness and redundancy that arises from that. You know, most people don't want to say, why do I think red things are red? Or, or what, what does it mean to be the kind of thing that I am who can ask, what does it mean? There's a sense of uh, of uncertainty and even exhaustion. Like there's a threshold a lot of people don't want to cross to investigate the world in this way. Yeah, well, I, I think it on the face of it, it's almost like the questions seem too obvious to warrant being asked. You know, like, what is a human being? Well, shouldn't we already know? I mean, if anybody should know what a human being is, shouldn't human beings know? And 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 so the question is kind of pointless. But of course, it's not a pointless question because, and this is a Heideggerian thing, that which is closest to us is furthest from our understanding, right? And so, you know, like sometimes I'll, I'll give a silly example of this as, you know, um, you can't look out your eye and see the color of your eyes, you know, but, but literally the color of your eyes is the closest thing to your eye. And so there's a way in which, you know, here we are, we're living as human beings, but, um, but a deep and complete and full understanding of what it is to be human seems to elude us in some kind of way. And so you're right, like at first glance, it seems like it's a pointless question. But then if, as you sink into it a little bit more, what you recognize is, well, yeah, I mean, there, it's true. Like there's a way in which I don't know myself. There's a way in which I don't know what it is to be a human being. And life is lived in the question. Life is lived in the unfolding answer to that kind of question. If you turn, turn in that direction, if you turn toward what's here and allow what's here, allow yourself, allow humanity, the human condition to show itself. And I think that's that's one of the key elements of 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 his approach is that uh, is that you don't you don't uncover what's here by messing with it. You actually uncover what's here by opening to it and allowing it to show itself to you, allowing who you are to show to show up. And oddly enough, you discover who you are and you become more of who you are more of who you've always been in a certain sense. And yet that can also be viewed as a development of who you are. So this is kind of the territory that Heidegger invites us into. I think really he he's sort of like, he he doesn't want to feed you ready, ready to hand answers. He wants to invite you into being a phenomenologist. Well, let's jump back and give this a little bit of personal context. Um, I got into Heidegger through a collection of his essays because I was curious to 
dissect the way he dissected Nietzsche on the will to power. I think it's mm. a brilliant commentary, although I think there's ways he does a disservice to Nietzsche. And it was only years later after an extended state change experience that I got obsessively interested in thinkers I thought might point the way toward post-postmodernism. And I went back and started to read his essays on technology, and I started to listen to Hubert Dreyfus on being in time. Yeah. Uh, so that's the condensed snapshot of my journey. What about you? How'd you get into Heidegger? You know, I never heard about Heidegger until I started to train as a coach. You know, and at that time, I was training. I was training in a kind of coaching that was uh, heavily integrally informed. You know, uh, of the Wilberian sort. And um, but in addition to that thread of Wilbur. Um, the person that I learned coaching from, James Flaherty, was also a student of Fernando Flores. And Fernando Flores, you know, uh, he was uh, is quite a character. He and, and has had quite a history. Um, he was uh, the finance minister of Chile by the age of 29, I believe. And he was part of the, um, uh, the Allende um uh, administration um, that got overthrown and, and then Pinochet was installed. Um, but Fernando came to the United States after that and started to study to get his PhD in computer science. And he did something which I think no one thought was possible. Um, he uh, took Heidegger and Gadamer, um, which are continental philosophers, and married that with Austin and Searle, who were analytic philosophers, and married the two of them with the cognitive biology of uh, Maturana and uh, Varela. And inside of that, he constructed something that he called ontological design. And a kind of uh, sort of branch of that was something called ontological coaching. And the whole idea was this was a style of coaching that was focused on helping clients to cultivate a new way of being. That's what was ontological about it. And so uh, the kind of coaching that I first learned was a kind of integral ontological style of coaching. And so what I had been hearing from my teacher was just how crucial Heidegger's work was in, in understanding the, the deep roots of this. And so I can remember, um, I guess it would have been around 2001 or so, you know, was the first time I cracked open a book about Heidegger. And it wasn't it was secondary literature at the time. And I found even the secondary literature impenetrable. And um, and it wasn't until I, you know, I kept coaching and then I was invited to be on faculty at that school. And I just had a persistence of continuing to read, you know, two or three books a year for a number of different a number of years and um wading through this sort of thicket, you know, uh of uh of of new language and concepts and phenomenology. And somewhere probably after a few years of that, um, it started to make sense to me. And so, um, but the thing I think that was the secret, not only did I have some determination and I kept going in spite of the fact that I was confounded by what I was reading. Um, and I think that's kind of the pathway, as far as I can tell with Heidegger, that you have to kind of do that. It's like somewhere in the fifth or sixth book in, uh, it starts to make sense to you. like It's like learning a foreign language. But the key that kept me going was I had an application of it. I had a coaching practice that um, I was constantly reading and saying, so how does this 
notion of Heidegger show up in the coaching work that I'm doing. And I was constantly going back and forth between my experience and what he was writing. And so in that way, it was it was a training in being a being a, a kind of hermeneutic phenomenologist, um, which was uh, which is the methodology that he's really speaking from and and um, promoting. Well, evoked in me this experience that I had one time reading a Heidegger essay, where I was fall I was trying to follow a sentence. And I I read it several times, and at the end of the sentence, every time I'm like, I, I don't I don't know anything. I didn't get anything out of that sentence. Right. So then I started to watch what was happening to me as I read the sentence, and I was making these moves. I was making moves. Then there was like a moment in the middle where I kind of looped around. I came down. And I knew the sent the words at the end, and I still had nothing. And I thought two interesting things happened. One is like, oh, that move is a signature to his style. And mm -hmm. going through that experience is not a failure to comprehend him. It's a way of being in touch with him. Mm. But the other experience I had was I've done that before. When I was a kid, I loved this game of climbing a tree and trying to see how many trees you could go before you had to touch the ground. Oh, wow. there's a, you're climbing and you're climbing. And then there's a moment where you're between two trees and then you're on another tree. And that moment between is in aporia. It's, it's different. It's, it's like That's a right. gap in understanding. And I, I really felt like, Oh, I used to do this physically and now I can do this intellectually. It's been internalized. That's beautiful. That's, that's a great way to talk about it because I think, you know, Heidegger has this concept that uh, that I use a lot in coaching. Um, he calls it a breakdown in obviousness, and the whole idea is that you know, um, and we can we can unpack uh, some of the, the the presuppositions of this idea as well. But the whole idea is, according to Heidegger, we live embedded in a world, but we don't. We're not in the world. We are in the world, but the world is also in us. So this is a very non-dual concept in a certain kind of way. We're, we don't exist somehow separate from the world, and therefore we are in the world like some kind of container. We are embedded in this in, in a world, but we can experience moments in which the world stops, um, in which there's a breakdown of obviousness. So what it, what it's like to live in a world um, is that we just sort of navigate around as if what to do and who to be is completely obvious. You know, you don't think about like when you're, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you roll over and your feet land on the floor, you don't think about which foot to put down first. You don't, you know, you stand up and you, if you're like me, you walk immediately to the coffee maker and, you know, you fix yourself a cup of coffee. You don't really think about like, how am I going to do that? I mean, I do that almost half asleep anyway. So, you know, all of that is just happening sort of spontaneously, automatically. And I don't, there's no premeditation. There's no deliberation. There's not, not even choice making in, in some sense. There's just, there's just the expression of an obviousness. And if we really start to attune to that, and that's, this is an example of that, like something that is so everyday that it sort of withdraws from our usual awareness and considerations. And so, the vast majority of our day uh, is obviousness. But then we have these breakdowns of obviousness where suddenly what to do and who to be is no longer obvious. And we have these also all the time and every day. Um, some of the most common ones are interacting with human beings. We're great breakdown generators for each other. You know, it's like we try to convey something or to communicate something and the way the person responds, it becomes clear to us that they didn't get what we meant. 
And so now what we did, what was obvious was we said it the way we said it, but now what do we do? Right now it's non-obvious. And now we have to do a little bit of work in the conversation because the meaning that we wanted to convey didn't get across, right? But um, we have those kinds of breakdowns. We have the breakdowns of, you know, you show up at work and suddenly you you realize that the company is doing uh, bad financially and they've decided to lay off, you know, half of their workforce and you're in that half. Now what do you do, right? Everything was just cruising along. And now there's this big interruption in life. And suddenly, who to be and what to do in that moment isn't obvious, right? And some people can get stuck there, right? So um, so these breakdowns, these are actually openings to see the world in a different way. They're openings to be differently in the world. And um, I think this this concept of breakdown of obviousness is actually one of the ones that that is really helpful in these in this time between worlds when we're experiencing the you know the many crises of the poly crisis the meta crisis because essentially what that is is an enormous sort of like hyper object of you know breakdown producing uh, you know it's a, sort of a, this effulgence of breakdowns are just sort of happening in the world and I think will continue to happen. And there's sort of two responses. Like one, we can say, we can face them as they are. And we can say, the way we've conceived of things, the world that we've been in no longer works. And that means not just the world out there, but the world in here. Like how I understand myself in this world no longer works. And if we can face that reality, then there's an opportunity to actually, in a creative leap, actually begin to begin to experiment with being a different kind of human being, which I think is actually what's called for here. That, that, that the true response needed in the meta crisis is an ontological one. You know, there will be technological responses and there will be political responses and sociological responses, etc. But None of those really touch into the kind of being that we are. And that ontological response is actually the, the one that's needed. And so breakdowns in obviousness are that opening to, to make this kind of ontological response and, and shift and transform who we are such that we can, um, you know, we can be a kind of human being that's more sustainable on the planet, for example. But the other response to breakdowns is that we can deny them. We can say, oh, well, things aren't working because I'm, I didn't do it well enough. You know, the idea is that how I am and how I see the world and how I see to act in the world, it fundamentally is still workable, even though it just failed, because I need to improve a little bit more. I need to, I need to try harder. I need to put more effort into it. I need to do something, but I'm not going to give up on this. And so there's a certain way which we kind of deny the, the breakdown and we kind of redouble down or recommit to our current ways. And we just keep going with that. Or maybe we deny the breakdown because we don't know that there's another alternative and we don't really want to sit there feeling like a failure. Right? So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, yeah, things aren't working over here, but what's over there? Let's just focus on this over here. This is looking good. Don't don't look that direction, you know. So there's of course 
you know, we're, we're, we're all guilty of that. You know, we're all guilty of, of denial uh, until we can't, until we can't anymore. Or if we understand this concept, I argue that maybe there's a little bit, a little bit, it's a little bit more easy to actually face into these sorts of breakdowns and say, okay, yeah, in this moment, I'm not supposed to know what to do. That is the, that is the breakdown. It's no longer obvious what to do. But something is, some creative possibility is now available to me that previously wasn't because I was just kind of moving forward in the way that I know how to be and do. So, yeah, your story, your story of being in between the trees, you know, or even reading Heidegger, like reading Heidegger is a breakdown experience. You know, virtually every sentence, you know, where you're reading something and you go, okay, that's, it's just not obvious what he means. Right. Heidegger for a time between trees. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It it occurs to me there's two uh, slightly different modes of the breakdown of obviousness. One is, is maybe I'm, you know, I'm wearing pants. They're functioning fine. I pay no attention to them until I hear them rip. Uh, now they're an object. They, they've fallen out of the flow of my usage. Now I could go immediately, like you were saying, into another mode of like what you do when your pants are ruptured, or I could e- exist in the sh- in the time between modes there. Yeah. So that's that's a thing in which the function, the obviousness of the function has broken down. Now, there's another thing that's happening with our technology today, which is we're being given functions that aren't breaking down, but they're simulations, right? Mm. We're talking to someone online, the function is flowing perfectly, but we're aware that the obviousness of this function is somehow broken, that it's maybe not real, that it doesn't have the same meaning, that I can't trust any of the things, even if they have utility and function in an obvious way. Yeah, like, um, what's an example of that? I'm, cu- I'm curious to explore that a little bit more. When you well, say I could you have, a, I mean, and- something that something that passes the Turing test. Like, I, I get somebody on my Facebook contact list, and I have a discussion with them, and after a while, I start to think this is actually a robot. I see what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, it's right. been going along, but the obviousness is breaking down, but not because the function has been thwarted because the, the, the meaning of what the function is has been thwarted. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting example. I mean, right. That, that, that happens. Um, yeah. I mean, I was talking to to my brother who is single right now and he was getting onto the dating apps and he's like, they're just crawling with bots and you, you know, you start to have a conversation with somebody and, and, uh, and then you experience that he didn't say it this way, but it, since we're talking Heidegger, he experienced a breakdown in obviousness and the, and the breakdown in obviousness is, Hey, wait a second. Something's a little off here. Something doesn't feel quite right here. And suddenly the world that you were in, where you were just simply behaving spontaneously, automatically, uh, suddenly you recognize that's not the world. That's not really what's going on here. And so that moment of interruption and that that moment of of stuckness would be the probably the more common word that we could use. Um, but you're right, that that is that is happening. And and you know, with the the acceleration of technology these days, um things get broken. I mean, that's that was even what wasn't that the 
the kind of rallying cry of uh, certain tech companies, right, was move fast and break things. And, uh, you know, I think what a lot of what they're breaking is a certain world um, in a way. And so it's interesting because it kind of cuts two directions. It's like, it's like breakdowns can be real open. They can be openings into something else, into, into a different way to be. Um, they can be openings to transformation, openings to development. In fact, I would argue that if we look at this in terms of, uh, of adult development, that the pathway of adult development is literally laid breakdown by breakdown. You know, you, you need to keep having your world and your sense of self, but have kind of cracked open. But at the same time, it can also it can also be very disorienting, right? And I think that that is that is perhaps what's starting to happen um, for some people is that the the pace of change, the pace of transformation, the 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 frequency and the scale of the breakdowns is starting to occur in a way that is having uh, having some of us feel more and more disoriented um, in the world. Um, which is which has its own problems. So, you know, it's like there needs to be some kind of a some kind of a middle road where there's an a you know a, a zone of proximal disorientation or something like that where you know <laughs> we you know there's a, there's a Goldilocks zone of disorientation you know where we have enough but not too much um, that allows us the, the time that it takes, the biological time that it takes for human beings to actually transform. And this is where like, you know, AI, which is not really operating according to biological time, right? Uh, it's operating in an entirely different temporal space and, uh, ever accelerating, uh, ever more. So yeah, that's going to be a big breakdown generator, probably one of the biggest ones of the decade. I uh, got the impression while you were talking of a way in which Heidegger can be useful through this concept that I hear translated as throwingness, that we're sort of, we're thrown into the world, right? Like uh, the dice have been rolled and here we are. And throwingness has these two features. One is embedding, you're, you're in a world. The other is disorientation. It's confusing to have been thrown. And if, if that's, if that's so close to us that we can't detect it, then our world seems very stable. And when we encounter disorientations and breakdowns, there's a huge contrast to our normal experience. But if we're able to unveil the disorienting quality of merely being a being that's thrown into the world, then that might give us a leg up when it comes to processing subsequent disorientations that we have to face. Yeah. Yeah, this is another one of Heidegger's coinages, right? Thrownness. It's like where you find yourself. And so in any moment you can find yourself, like here we are, you know, and, and we we get thrown into a world that's not of our own design, you know, and so the language that we're speaking right now, neither of us created this language. You know, the structure of the society that we have with uh, the, the, the economics and the political systems and the you know, land, you know, agreements about land ownership and everything. We didn't design any of that. Um, and so, and we could go on and on and on and on, right? Uh, I didn't choose this body, right? If I had a choice, I'd, I'd, I'd probably uh, like to be taller, you know, uh, look a little bit more like Brad Pitt, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, 
you know, so we 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 find ourselves somewhere. We get thrown into the world and we just find ourselves somewhere. And for me, the most interesting uh, thing to look at in, in, in terms of this is, do we own our thrownness? Meaning, do we accept it? Do we open to it? Do we face it? Or do we somehow disown it? Do we... Uh, do we work to um, to avoid what's here, right? You know, the in in Buddhist and yogic uh, psychology, they talk about the three poisons. You know, avoidance, attachment, and delusion. You know, uh, avoidance, attachment, and delusion are three ways that we don't own our thrownness in a certain kind of way. It's like, well, well, I'm trying to avoid feeling something. Maybe you know, feeling hurt, for example, feeling emotionally wounded, feeling bored, but. Sometimes that's where we're thrown. We're thrown into the midst of something, uh, and uh, we're often trying to avoid it and trying to and being attached to feeling otherwise, right? And so, this actually connects to uh, my favorite definition of authenticity, which is a big Heideggerian theme that where he sort of picks up where uh, uh, and borrows a lot from Kierkegaard. My favorite definition of authenticity is being true to our thrownness and our freedom in it. And so what's also true is that in every moment of thrownness, there's also freedom. And we can disown our thrownness and, you know, through avoidance and attachment, but we can own our thrownness, but feel somehow trapped, like trapped, like a victim of circumstance. I'm trapped in this situation. I'm resigned. Nothing new is possible. So neither disowning our thrownness nor owning our thrownness by itself is authentic. But if we own our thrownness and we recognize that fundamentally our nature as human beings is also spaciousness and freedom, that that actually is, um, when we own both of those, that's what it is to be truly authentic. And I find there's something practical in this because as I'm working with coaching clients, you know, in the back of my mind is, well, what is happening in their life and are they really facing it? Or is there some avoidance here? Or, you know, is there is there some kind of attachment here? And how can I skillfully help them to actually turn their attention to what's here right now and begin to recognize the, the wisdom in that move? The wisdom to to feeling what's here, even if they would prefer to feel something else, for example, right? But the other thing I'm tracking is, uh, are they actually owning their innate freedom in the midst of this? That yes, there is this circumstance, but they're not shackled by it. They're not imprisoned in this circumstance. That there is fundamentally a kind of freedom that is an expression of the fundamental nature of being human. So it's not conditioned. It's not conditional on circumstances. That it's something about our very nature. And and we own that in the midst of this circumstance as well. And so that I think is also a, a really interesting notion for these times. Because it's easy to feel somehow, you know, caught in a circumstance. You know, we're caught in this world. It's not doesn't seem to be going in a, in a good direction in many ways. And yet, there is always freedom to be otherwise. 
makes me think of having conversations with the kids about the kind of world that they're going forward into because they're very uh, intrigued by the cataclysmic uh, portents of the world. And many of those are quite valid. So yeah. even though I want to support them emotionally, I don't want to say, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, yeah, th these are serious things. That's right. But I also want to say to them, look, you are, or can volunteer to be, the people who are perfect for this time, right? You're the ones who were born to go through this. Yeah. Um, and you can understand yourself as having the capacities necessary for that. Uh, and there's a move in there that uh, I was thinking as you were speaking of a book called Spacious Body by Jeffrey Maitland, who's a, yeah. who's a Zen uh, Rolfer. Yeah, great book. Yeah. It says in that book, freedom is the creative appropriation of limitation. Mm -hmm. right? And that's a very beautiful definition that I think... <laughs> Uh, no pun intended, comports well with, with Heidegger's work. Because when, I, when I've when i read Heidegger on death, it seems like he's saying, death is not something you've experienced. You know, you see bodies break down, that's going to happen to you, but you don't actually know what death is. death is. Death is for you an unknown limitation. It's the possibility of the end of your possibilities. That's and right. the way yeah. you relate to that, the way you take ownership of that is what determines whether you can be an authentic person or whether you remain just being responding as one might respond to things. Yeah. Well, it's part of our throneness, right? It's like where, where we find ourselves is in the midst of a life in which death is a possibility. And in fact, it's, 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 it's not only a possibility, it's a kind of guarantee, right? What we just don't know when, but, um, and, and when death comes, as you, as you say, this is, this is uh, this is the way Heidegger says it that death is the you know is the the possibility of no more possibilities right so that's that's a particular view um you know which isn't necessarily held by some spiritual traditions um but but what is true is we don't know we don't know what that really will be like but yeah this is this is what it is to really face your throneness is is to be to be in a way that owns that owns your dying, right? And of course, you know, um, you know, famously, uh, Ernest Becker wrote a book, you know, the denial of death. You know, to point to the way that most of us are actually attempting to live in a way that pretends that we're not of the nature to die. That pretends that somehow that's you know that's something that well, let's just not talk about that, right? Um, and uh, and the way that that of course to say it in the way that we're talking now shifts us into a kind of inauthentic relationship with uh, with ourselves and with life, um, which ultimately undermines our capacity to live. So we deny our death, and the result, the consequence is we can't really fully live. And so it's like we're zombies, you know. And is that really the life that we want? Is to be you know, to, to be in this kind of undead situation. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so Heidegger, this is, I think, part of what Heidegger's inviting is, is, and he calls it being toward death. It's like, let's actually have a be a way of being that accepts and embraces that, that owns that um, as where we find ourselves. The zombie notion is interesting because what I see in a lot of zombie fiction is People find them. People are thrown into this circumstance in which the 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 undead predators surround us, 
And then the story is they undergo a long period of transition whereby they don't really want to fully engage with this world. And finally, they have to go, all right, we're in a zombie situation. We have to deal with this. We have to make full contact with the undead limitation mm -hmm. of the world now. And that's where they come alive. And that's the almost the wish fulfillment aspect of zombie fiction. That's where that's the scenario in which we hope we would fully encounter death and start to live authentically. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's fascinating, um, you know, to to look at just the the prevalence of of uh, of zombie of the zombie archetype in the world today, you know, in, in the in the times that we're in. I don't I don't think it's uh, just uh, you know random. I, I think there there is something there is something that is emerging in the collective awareness of uh, you know that. Uh, that's almost like a there's a kind of mirror in which we can see a certain way that we've been being without understanding it fully, without owning it fully. And um, and so yeah, I think I think that you know that Heidegger's uh and I think here he's really picking up Kierkegaard as well a lot, but but you know, in, in owning our death. You know, as a coach, one of the one of the exercises, I don't do this with every client, but you know, um but there are certain clients it just seems an, like an obvious exercise to give them. And the exercise goes like this. Um, you know, can, think of yourself sitting on your deathbed, you know, and, you know, you're looking back on your life. And um, what would you feel, what would you want to remember as the most meaningful thing in your life? You know, what regret, what regrets might you feel? Um, things like that. So it's sort of like positioning someone in a place where they they're on their deathbed. They have to own their death in that moment. But then asking them, um, what do they care about? And then, of course, bringing them back into the present moment and saying, okay, now given that you know that's what your answer was. And by the way, it's almost never something like, I wish I would have worked harder right? It's, it's usually something like, I wish I would have spent more time with my loved ones, right? I, I wish I would have enjoyed, uh, you know, my kids growing up uh, more instead of working, you know, 60 hour weeks at, at, you know, at my job or something like that. And so, you know, when you own your death, it suddenly sort of like reprioritizes your life in a certain kind of way. And you get clearer about what you fundamentally care about. And that, by the way, is one of Heidegger's answer to what is a human being. You know, what is a human being? A, a being who cares, right? That fundamentally uh, we care. And this is also for the Heideggerian informed cri uh, critics of AI is one of their, I think, strongest points is that no matter how much, you know, the chatbots are able to you know, give us information and, and talk with us that at the end of the day, they don't care, right? One of the Heideggerian philosophers says it really bluntly. He says, they don't give a damn. And that's the difference. And so, um, so yeah, there, there are these, you know, I think what Heidegger's doing is he's trying to bring forth into our awareness what it is to be human in a way that when we start to take on when we start to take on that understanding and start to examine our life in that way 
that these philosophical concepts become psychoactive in a way. They they actually start to change our sense of ourself and how we actually live our life, right? Which I think is, uh, for me, one of the marks of great philosophy is it's not just some sort of conceptual apparatus that you learn to navigate, that that engaging in it actually transforms your sense of, of yourself and of of life and of of what it is to be, um, in a in a positive way, in a way that actually um, helps, right? The the philosophical invocation of care in his work is really interesting, and it makes me think. I th I think this is from uh, the age of the world picture, uh, which is a great concept because it, at it, at the same time it evokes the fact that we're on the other side of having seen the earth from space it's a different kind of world but also that we're now in the world where paradigms and worldviews are our fundamental uh constituents of the way we view reality we view it as being striated into worldviews but there's a passage in there about how like anxiety about the condition of the world is evidence of care for the world but you then have to be able to undergo some transformation. You have to be able to turn that concern over into care. Like if I'm worried about the environment, it's because I care about the environment, but that difference of phrasing and that shift in my heart makes a huge difference to how I go forward in living. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think it's Heidegger, although this might also be something he borrowed from Kierkegaard that, that anxiety is the doorway to authenticity. And that what it is to really own our throneness and our freedom in it at the same time, in the same moment, in the same instant, at first feels a lot like anxiety. You know, it's like, so here I am. I'm in this situation. I must face this exactly as it is. And even to the even to the point of, of what I know about the situation and what I don't know about the situation, like that's anxiety evoking. But then to recognize that I actually am free in this. And so feeling free, you know, freedom is something that we're always, you know, many people are, we cherish our freedom, we, we want our freedom, we herald freedom as a fundamental value. That freedom can also feel like falling. You know, freedom can also feel like, like uh, things are so open and spacious that uh, it seems at first that there's nothing to, to land on. Now, eventually, you know, and this is, I think, what a lot of deep spiritual practice is, is, is about, in my understanding, is we recognize that that freedom itself is a ground. That at first it seems like a like if like an absence of ground, but in fact, it in fact it is a kind of ground that we can learn to land into. And so um, so this passage through a kind of anxiety where it's important that we have a tolerance for anxiety so that we can actually get to the other side of it and, and land into something, land into our own authenticity. But I don't think we would feel the anxiety, and maybe this is your point, without caring, right? So there has to be care fundamentally in the center of it. To treat freedom as a ground is different than to treat freedom as uh, a condition that escapes from traps. And I think that's one of the reasons why owning and unfolding the, the limitation quality is necessary. You have to find the freedom 
that exists even when you're trapped. Otherwise, you won't discover it as ground. And I, I think there's something in that that makes Heidegger's work attractive to leading edge Japanese thinkers. Right? Mm. There's a lot of intersections between Heidegger and Zen. And I think it's not just mm, the way he articulates being apart from beings, but mm-hmm. it's the sense that you see in the Zen koan that you can discover a radically different quality of freedom in a position of complete entrapment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think this this is the the thing about about Zen koans is that they're actually um, breakdown creators, right? A Zen koan is a breakdown in obviousness. The whole that's the whole point of it, and so it creates a breakdown in such a way that there's an openness, and the response to the koan isn't in some kind of answer that one can conjure. It's literally in a shift of being. It's an ontological response, right? And so in a way, you could look at the metacrisis that we're in as a gigantic earth-sized, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, complete population-sized koan that we're in. And the response, you know, we, we will try, just like Zen students do, to try to dissect the problem intellectually in any kind of different way. We will try our technological responses and our political responses and our social movements, and, and they will all have their place. But fundamentally, the koan can only be solved with an ontological response, with actually a shift in in our own beingness. And um, you know, this this for me is really why uh, Heidegger is is so relevant today, is because he is one of the few philosophers that is is really. Well, I think he was one of the first philosophers to kind of rescue ontology in a certain way and say. You know, I mean, for a long time, there was this prohibition, thou, thou shalt not commit ontology, you know, uh, in, in philosophy. And he kind of rebooted the whole project and said, hang on a minute, we, we actually need this. You know, and then there, there are others that came after him as well, you know, that, um, I mean, all of critical realism, Roy Basker's work is, you know, uh, very ontological in nature as well, and probably owes a big debt of gratitude to, to Heidegger. Um, but of course, Roy has his own angle to all of this. But, but yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's tough going with Heidegger, but I think I think it pays dividends. Uh, a lot of people sort of put the blame for the meta crisis on. Uh, an exaggerated left brain civilization that's been accumulating these debts on the side of its progress, right? There's the Ian McGilchrist vision that we've been imbalanced in that respect and we need to return to a more uh, poetic mode of being, or at least balance those functions out. Right. Uh, So that puts me in mind of distinctions. I've heard you talk to this uh, technical attunement and poetic attunement. And I've been intrigued as to, whether the way Heidegger talks about the technical and the technological is is sufficient, right? Or whether he's using too small a sample size. Because it seems to me you can look back for several thousand years and see that we've been on this trajectory of mechanistic, technical and framing, reductionistic, utility-oriented thinking uh, that works in tandem with our technology. Uh, we create it and it uh, retroactively scripts our own brain 
Mm-hmm. Was it doing the same thing all along? You know, was it doing something different at the beginning and it's only been doing this for a few thousand years? And as we continue to run it, it stops saying mechanism and starts saying flatland, ecology, intuition, right brain, <laughs> right? Is that is right? Do we just see only a slice of the curve? Uh, right. Is this possible or or am, am I actually just doing poetic attunement to the technical? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> the way I read Heidegger is that he's basically saying that this is what's been happening all along. And, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the, the simplest tools like a hammer, you know, and like what is, you know, that, that the, way, the way in which a tool actually becomes an extension of the human body. Um, in the way that we use it, and this is really what it is to have some, to, to have this kind of obviousness, you know, is that you when you learn to use a hammer, you you stop thinking about it, you stop trying to figure out how to hold it and how to how to aim it, you know, to hit the nail squarely, and and uh, and you just simply do it, right? Um, uh, Bert Dreyfus and uh, calls this. He was a um, uh, philosophy professor out here at, at University of California, Berkeley, and probably one of the chief people responsible for um, the English-speaking world knowing as much about Heidegger as we do in in, in, the, in the philosophical circles. And uh, Dreyfus, uh, I think, called this um, embodied skillful coping. This kind of way in which in which the tool as tool actually vanishes in our usage of it and simply becomes an extension of our body. You know, I mean, maybe you, I know I experience something like this when I drive um, a car, you know, you drive a car for a while and you just kind of, you know, how, how much room you have on both sides. And, you know, if I go to travel to another city and I, and I, and I get a rental car, it's always a different size than the car that I normally drive. And for the first like half day or so I'm driving around, I really have to pay attention because I don't really know like how much room or how much space I have in the front and the back. And, and then after like a day of that, suddenly now that rental car is my, is part of my body, right? So I think the way I read Heidegger is his claim is that in a way that's always been true, um, and that uh, and that our sense of selves and our sense of body has always been shaped by tool use in that kind of way. Um, but what hasn't always been true is that we've been living in a technological attunement, and you know this whole notion that I've put forth a couple of times now that that the meta crisis needs and calls for an ontological response, meaning it calls for us to be a different kind of human being. Well, it turns out that there is precedent for that, uh, and, and a lot of precedent for that. That we mistakenly imagine as we look back from our contemporary modern technologically attuned lifestyle, and we look back in history. We just imagine that their world was exactly like ours, but with more primitive technology, because that's how we see the world. But in fact, Heidegger did a whole um, study, which he called the history of being, which is a funny thing to, to have a history of, because on the surface of it, being is just being. It's, it's you know, being a thousand years ago is the same as being today. And his notion is that actually that's not true, that there is a, a, a developmental history of being, that what it meant to be to the, you know, the pre-Homeric Greeks is fundamentally different than what it is to be today. 
And uh, so he he plots an entire set of changes that have occurred, meaning that we have as a as humanity actually uh, created different ways to be human many different times in our history. And now we're at this moment, thrown into this moment. And what's being asked of us is to once again, not for the first time, but once again, create a different way to be as human beings in order to face the kind of existential threats that we're facing. Because the way of being that we that that dominates in this world is demonstrably unsustainable. Right. So that, that's the way I read I read Heidegger is that it's it's been like that. And so I I I mean it's dangerous right now to say a lot about AI because so much is changing so quickly. And I mean my original training was as a computer scientist and I did I I worked on AI projects 25 years ago, right? And the sentiment was at the time that I was working on that stuff that people were basically giving giving up the idea because it had been worked on for 30 or 40 years before that. Um, and we didn't we really weren't that much further ahead. And it's uh, I was very surprised in the last several years to see the advances that have been made and now even within the last six months to see what's here. So it's it's dubious to say a lot because we we will probably be be wrong. Anything I say will probably be wrong and and proved wrong within <laughs> an extremely short amount of time. But it's hard to imagine the technology um, helping us to be a different kind of human being. That's the that's the the, the question I'm in right now. And I actually have, uh, you know, I have uh, students in my coach training school who are actively working on uh, AI chatbots for coaching right now. And so I'm actually in, in a conversation with them about, you know, what are the limits of this and and what what different experiments should be run. And I'm in favor of running the experiments because I think it's important to understand the limits of, of the technology. And the only way we'll do that is to actually try it. But yeah, I don't know what what's your view on this. What do you do you think? Well, I'm I'm in an exploratory mode. Right? I'm doing a series on AI, and uh, everybody's got a different take on how far it can go. It seems right. like right. some people are very enthusiastic and think there's basically no real reason why we can't skew these things into love, wisdom, care, poetry, things like that. Right. Um, some people are of the opinion that what we're dealing with are not devices, but um, a new kind of ecosystem or a new kind of human collective. Um, and that these these kinds of plural entities are now going to dominate history. And you need to train up uh, specifically wise and loving versions of them to be the instructors in that playing field or else that playing field will be denuded of wisdom. Right. And some people are of the opinion that there's something fundamentally unsound about the entire function that we're, we're just playing with 
um, simulations and statistical reconstructions of the surface level of knowledge that by their very structure preclude depth. So there's a fundamental right. limit on how well they can be used to get us anywhere as human beings. And that the danger is we'll treat them as if they can do way more than they can actually do. And that'll leave us in a cul-de-sac. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm siding kind of more with what you last said here that you know, in, in my work, I work with the model of four different depths, you know, depths of the present moment, we can understand ourselves in terms of these depths, we can understand each other, human relationships, we can understand the natural world in terms of these depths. And I can see the two surface depths, which I call parts in process, which really live inside of a kind of, uh, a kind of, you know, we know them in a, Cart in a Cartesian epistemology, you know, a subject object kind of knowing. And um, and there I can easily see, I mean, there's already software um, that's existed for over a decade um, that can navigate, um, help someone, a client, a user of the software to navigate uh, those kinds of depths just by, uh, you know, some simple if-then kind of statements and, you know, walking people through a kind of decision tree. Um, and so AI will probably be able to do that in a far sort of smoother way. It will feel it will feel more natural. It will feel less programmatic. Um, and so I think that's that's there. And arguably, that will probably be helpful for some people. But then there are the two deeper depths. And these, in order to access these depths, we actually have to collapse the Cartesian dualism. And so you know, here epistemology and ontology are, are collapsed. So that what we know at those depths is what we are. We know being, and we know being by being being. And so that there is knowing implicit in being. And uh, here, I don't think that AIs can venture, right? Um, and, uh, and so I, I wonder if, if you know, talking with an AI just trains us to be better at talking with AIs, or does it actually train us in understanding what it is to be human and having healthier relationships with human beings? And so that I think for me is, uh, is one of the chief questions about this. And I think as far as I can tell, the answer is it will be somewhat helpful, and that, but there are limits and there are places it just can't go. And so in a way, one silver lining might be that, that through the attempt to construct human intelligence, which I think is one way to say what we've been doing with artificial intelligence, through, through the attempt to play God and to reconstruct ourselves, that both our relative success but our ultimate failure in doing so helps us to more accurately understand what it is to be human in the first place. And I think that could be a silver lining to all of this that uh, – could actually be quite powerfully transformative in the culture for us to really finally get what it is to be human and that what it is to be human is not technological. Because in, in a certain way in this technological attunement that prevails in our culture, we're acting as if it is. And this was Heidegger's concern, you know, writing in the 1930s and 40s, that this technological attunement was hiding fundamentally what it is to be human from us. And that we were treating each other as, as if we're capacity standing in reserve as technology, as functions in an organization. Um, and 
he had big concerns about about that. And so, you know, what if the response to the metacrisis is a call for for us to stand forth as as human beings, not as functions, not as capacities, but actually to bring forth what is fundamentally human, human virtue, you know, love, care, compassion, courage, wisdom. This is a lot of the direction I'm heading in. Yeah, it strikes me that, uh, you know, in most science fiction, the the android or the cyborg character is is the site where the question of the human is raised. Uh, and just like uh, once everybody can live indoors, you have to go outside on purpose to get a tan or, you know, when you have a car, then you have to work out on purpose. I think we're entering a period in which uh, hum- to be human is an intentional act now. Right. And I think we can gain a lot of clarity by contrast if we start to see the things that make us particularly different from these devices. Right. These devices seem to be, at the moment, my fear is that they duplicate the most narcissistic version of human beings. Right. It's a language model about language. Uh, and when we're obsessed with ourselves rather than our relations and our embedding, we, we run into problems. Yeah. Although I see opportunities to change that, I know that Stephen Wolfram is working on linking his computational language with this stuff, and his language has two interesting features. One, it has real-time information about the world embedded in it, and the other is it accesses uh, computationally irreducible algorithms. So you're like, well, Mm -hmm. if we took the chatbots and we gave them real-world data and we gave them access to mystery, you're like, well, maybe we're getting something different. Uh, if we had enough like layering, then maybe the layers reflecting on themselves, reflecting on themselves might be able to allow the underlying experience of being to filter up through those layers in the way that they do in us. Uh, but I'm not uh, optimistic in the short term because in the short term, we're going to have pseudo intelligent tools that could be used really well for people and really poorly. And my guess is millions of people will use them very poorly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think AI is going to be probably the, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest, you know, socially transformative occurrences of the decade, no matter how it goes, you know, and it will invariably, there will be wonders that come out of it. Um, and we will look back in five years, you know, and, and we'll have a we'll have that moment in which we can't we can no longer remember life before AI. Like how do you know it's like, you know, I, I, I sometimes <laughs> ruminate on this. It's like, how did I navigate around before before the iPhone? Right? Like, you know, I, I can remember having paper maps in my car, but I also remembered I didn't always like I wasn't constantly looking at them. So I was trying to figure out, like, how did I do that? Um, somehow I used them, but somehow I didn't use them while I was driving. And so, but anyway, this is just an example. Like, um, I think there will be things like that that we'll we'll be able to to talk about probably sooner than we think. And then there'll be all kinds of instances um, in which AIs are doing things that you know, a- according to their programming, that we're aghast at. You know, that that are just you know that are 
that are killing people and um you know doing doing serious harm um and of course the big challenge right now is that with the current technology these things are all black boxes and so we have no idea how it's generating a lot of these a lot of these responses and that, and the that's a lot of the where a lot of the focus is going to have to be on is how do we actually learn to steer the ship because it's like we're letting it loose without the capacity to steer um and i think this is this is as i understand it uh, maybe it's an oversimplification but it's it's sort of one of the big concerns that a lot of people have right now that are in the know in ai you know once we let this loose from a Heideggerian perspective, it seems like there's a lot of ambiguity about um, which mode of being we're dealing with here. Because Kydegger sort of talks about, you know, there's the stuff, and then there's using things, and then there's the stuff that takes a position on the fact of the kind of stuff that it is. And right. we're looking at the black box going, which which one is it? What is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, is, yeah, is this a new form of design, right? Uh which of course has been that that has been the intention i think is to is to manufacture this as a new form of design which is the kind of being that we are as human beings right um uh at the very least turn it into a tool to make it somehow ready to hand um you know to address human concerns right so clearly that's it's there as well um but yeah is there a, is there another mode of being um that that this is it's it's an it's an interesting question for sure you know i know that um graham harman you know and the speculative realists uh you know uh harman uh was a and i think is a uh, you know a fan of heidegger although also a, a critic of heidegger um and uh, expanded in uh, expanded some of the heideggerian notions in his book tool being i don't think i could give a fair representation of what he did there uh, but maybe that's a, a conversation for a later point, which uh, which would be would would be interesting because I think that that that's kind of the you know the modern day. There's a lot of things cooking in the in the world of ontology, and and I think the speculative realists are are, are right there in the middle of that conversation. So there there is there is um, more to the story of ontology than what Heidegger uh, offered us for sure. Um, it, it, and it could be that that's, you know, AI is actually prompting the unfoldment of that story. It bears an interesting analogy to the question of authenticity in human beings, right? Because we, uh, and this is in Heidegger, it's in Kierkegaard, it's in Gurdjieff. There's a lot of philosophers who discuss this idea that, yeah, you seem to be a functioning individual human being, but really you aren't. Really, you're something like an artificial intelligence at the moment. Mm. You're, you're operating, but you lack. You simulate a being, but you don't really have being. You're not. You're not uh, taking the position of the authentic. Um, so that might be the way he thinks about that. Might have some bearing on the way we think about these devices. Right? Assuming they are operating the way the inauthentic human being operates is there some parallel to the gaining of authenticity or the uncovering of authenticity that could go on in these devices yeah i think that's an interesting question you know i mean if you really look at the definition of authenticity that that i threw out earlier of, of owning our freedom and our freedom owning our throneness and our freedom in it 
really another way to approach that, and maybe you could even argue what's necessary to approach that is something like the concept of Buddhist uh, emptiness. You know, it's like that's actually how we own our freedom in it is the realization is the fully facing reality as it is, fully facing this and saying, yes, this is my situation. And recognizing the the, the radical constructedness of it all, right? Which is another way of talking about the, the emptiness, you know, emptiness of self, emptiness of other, emptiness of space, emptiness of time, emptiness of body, you know, the, these kinds of things that, that you work with in the Buddhist context. So what's, you know, what is, is there, is there an, is there a, a, a notion of freedom that applies to AIs? It comes close to that. What would that be? Uh, or is an AI, you know, that you could say an AI, an AI is, is, is subject to a certain kind of thrownness. But is there what it what is the what is the what is the freedom? What is the kind of freedom? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a, there's like a pre question on this. Like, is it is it already such a thing that could be thrown that could find itself to be free or unfree? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you could also you could also say that you know the AI is. I mean, it's it's nothing but constructs, right? It's nothing but constructs that are held in a in a well, since AIs really don't have agency in the world in a, in a kind of like uh, non-reified, uh, ever-mutable form in a certain way, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what I come back to, and certainly there are people who know way more about this than I do, but I, I keep coming back to this notion that as we wrestle with the question of AI, what we do simultaneously as we wrestle with the question of what is a human being because it seems that we are, we understand ai we understand both together in a certain sense right in the attempt to create to be gods and to create a human intelligence uh both in our successes and our failures we will see what human intelligence and what human beingness actually is so I, I, I think in the end, there, could, there is a silver lining there. I think in the end, there is, there is hope. But as you point out, and I agree with, there will be a lot of misuse of this. I mean, you know, you can only imagine, um, you know, AI-driven spam bots, you know, you know the, the kinds of uh, AI-driven scams that, that could get created. Tricky, tricky stuff to catch. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those situations where I, I don't doubt that 5% of the population could be radically clarified in their understanding of what it means to be a human being. But if the other 95% are using these things in um, either foolishness generating or destruction generating ways, um, then we have a, a rough couple of decades at least. Yeah, yeah I think so. I was going to say we might be lucky if it's 5%. <laughs> I think it might be yeah. closer to <laughs> 1% or some fractional, some fraction of that. Um, 
we live in interesting times for sure. Um, yeah. And I, th I think Heidegger does allow us to wrestle with these questions. I mean, what, what we're doing here is, you know, is we're wrestling with questions that Heidegger wrestled with, which, and Heidegger proposed that we wrestle with, which is what is being, what is the question of being, right? Uh, the question of being, what is a human being? It's, it's, it's a worthy question to, to, to put ourselves in front of and how we answer the, that question shapes how we parent, it shapes how we partner, it shapes how we lead, it shapes how we manage, it shapes how we go about our day, it shapes how we interact with, with people, it, sh it shapes how we share the road with other drivers, right? Like, like that is why this question is such an important one to, to consider. And we all have default answers that for the most part are ones that we've never really reflected on. We don't have them as conscious answers. Um, we 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 just have them as uh, as something that we've um, we've learned through interacting with the culture. And so when we learn about who we are as human beings, and we and we begin to shift our understanding, um, naturally it percolates into every facet of life. It starts to shape all of those different areas that I just named. Right. That that's the power of that kind of question. Although at first it seems like a ridiculous question to ask. Like, isn't that already a done deal? Like, should don't we already know? Instead of viewing it as like the, you know, the the creative edge of reality, like something is emerging here, something is unfolding here in in what we are. And in fact, to continue in, in this on this planet that needs to happen in a big way. Yeah. There's a, there's a really interesting way in which Heidegger um, makes the structure of the logic of philosophy, duplicate the gesture of mindfulness of like, of freshly rediscovering what we previously took as too familiar. Although yeah. I don't want to give him all the credit. He took most of it from Husserl, but uh, <laughs> one thing that popped up for me was earlier you were talking about how you sort of came into Heidegger as a Wilberian introdolite. Um, I'm curious where you see the overlaps and the distinctions between the two of them, because they both have, you know, fundamental different types of reality, Heidegger's modes and Wilbur's quadrants. They both have a kind of history of ontologies or of the emergence of different kinds of world spaces. So they might have a lot in common. How do you see their uh, overlap? You know, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know that I have really considered it that much. It's a little tricky. I mean, I think, I think as, as some in the integral community have named integral theory tends to hang out a little bit more on the epistemology side of things and a little bit less on the ontology side of things, which is why a lot of people have been excited about the, about, uh, you know, integrating critical realism and integral theory, because critical realism can be argued to kind of uh, be the opposite. It's a little bit more on, on the ontology side. And so when I, you know, I came I came to Heidegger already understanding, uh, you know, Wilbur and adult development and uh, things like that. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, it was, 
a kind of structural understanding in a certain way of, uh, you know, a, a con a conceptually sort of abstracted in a, in a certain kind of way. And then you come into Heidegger and what Heidegger is talking about is the everydayness, you know, he's talking about thrownness and, uh, and, and, and moods predisposing you to action and, you know, uh, modes of being and things like that. And so there's a, there's a sort of immediateness to Heidegger in the sense that you can put down the book and actually start to just uh, practice, you know, using, um, using what he's distinguishing in the very moment. And you can see it in the, in the everydayness. And so it felt to me like a like a qualitatively different kind of project in terms of how to engage things, and and in some sense the 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 sort of um, they could be complementary in a certain way because integral theory I think uh, I think lacks a lot of that like in, immediacy and even I would say even when you know, there was a move into an in, in integral transformative practice, which I think started to kind of bridge the gap between the theory and something that you could actually engage in. That that was a step in the right direction or, you know, adding something that was clearly missing. And yet, I think from a Heideggerian perspective, uh, there's a whole lot more in that direction that you could go. So yeah, I, I kind I don't really view them as overlapping. I kind of view them as as complementary in a certain in a certain way. You can definitely look at the history of being and the different um, stages of that that Heidegger has mapped, and you know pretty easily see a, a, a model of of adult development or you know a model of cultural development that that mirrors stages of development that you would recognize as somebody coming from a world of adult development. Um, I know I had a conversation with uh, with a philosopher who knows a lot more about Heidegger than I do, and I shared that interpretation with him, and he had some disagreements with it. But um, so, in, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I think... I think it's probably an oversimplification, you know, what I was trying to do, but there is something, you know, more or less kind of equivalent there, but, you know, clearly pointing at something different uh, at the same time. But um, yeah, so I view them more as complementary. I don't really view them as integrating in any kind of way. Yeah, as I think about it, and I'm I'm one of the people who thinks that integral theory and critical realism have a, had a difficult time integrating because of the epistemological emphasis in integral theory. Mm. They've tried to deal with it as a quadrants matter, and really they should be looking at the states as types of ontology that would resolve some of the disparity there. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, this ahead. is where I went with it as well. I mean, I, I was working with integral theory a lot for, for, you know, the better part of 15 years and really what began to emerge out of that. And I started to lean more and more into, into hermeneutic phenomenology. And actually that's where I started to shift the emphasis from assessment and design, like doing an integral assessment um, of my coaching clients and then some kind of a design and shifted more into being in relationship and understanding what's actually arising in the moment. So inviting my clients into a kind of hermeneutic circle uh, where we were, both of us, focused on what's here right now 
And in the process of doing that, recognizing that there is a depth here, which could be understood, you know, as a kind of version of a kind of gross, subtle, causal, non-dual uh, a set of basic states and recognizing how that can be navigated in real time. And then that became kind of like the central pillar of my work as a coach. And I developed a whole coaching methodology around that. Um, and so I definitely went more in that direction and seeing, you know, seeing that that was where that was a, an approach that had more of a practical application. Um, whereas this kind of abstracted um, uh, integral assessment um, I was finding had less utility. Yeah, I like the word invite there because yes, it's possible to chart out a lot of structural similarities in the in the vision space of what these two thinkers have thought out. And obviously the integral community is full of people who are, um, you know, unfolding pragmatists in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the structure of the philosophies invite you to different things. The the integral model seems to invite you to explore a systemic lens applied to reality, and Heidegger seems to invite you to use no lens and to just explore what's uh, hidden or half hidden in what's arising for you. Yeah, I think that's actually a good way to say it. Yeah, that they real they really invite a different kind of engagement, and and that they can be complementary. Yeah, I kind of want to ask the, in a way, the obvious question about Heidegger, which is some people feel like we should separate his thinking from his sociopolitical views. Yeah. And other people feel like a person's social and emotional responses in that realm betray something about them that's deeper than and more profound than and might contaminate uh, their thoughts from within. Uh, how do you personally adjudicate those two sides of the question of Heidegger? Yeah, well, this is this is as you say, it's sort of like the inevitable uh, conversation um, that that emerges around Heidegger because of his known um, support of of the Nazi Party, and um, and you know, it's. Um, I think where I come down on this is as far as I've studied his philosophy, I don't see anything in it that was chosen by the Nazi party as a fundamental platform or as a, as a, as some kind of a grounding for their belief systems or, or their behaviors. You know, I think he was um, at a time in, um, in history, um, in a position in, in German society as a professor who was swept up into the political movement as many were. And um, so I think that's that's there. And, and there are a few instances of him, you know, giving, giving talks at the university that on the surface of it were pretty much political propaganda. And that, you know, he's not really putting forth any kind of philosoph- philosophical view. He's definitely acting in a in a way that is more as a more as a, you know he's acting more politically in those in those instances and there are some examples in some of his notebooks which have come to light where he has expressed some anti-Semitic um, sentiments and and so we know about these things um, and you know we shouldn't let him off the hook for uh, for those beliefs we shouldn't we shouldn't gloss over that and say well it's all okay in the end. I think 
I think we have to hold him to account for, for that. But at the same time, if we then say that, every, that all of his body of work is somehow tainted by that and should be cast aside, it, that seems to be a bit too far for me. And my suspicion is, is that if we, if we looked back through the history of philosophy and actually had the opportunity to know about the, you know, the private views of a lot of our philosophers, we would have this same conversation with almost everyone in a certain kind of way. Now, we just happen to know about uh, know about some of these things with him, and um, of course, the the last century was you know a, a big exclamation mark in the center of it was World War II and what happened with uh, with the Holocaust, which you know is something that we should never forget. Uh, it's something that we should not let anybody off the hook for. So it's so you kind of have to you know, kind, I kind of come down on both sides of it, in a sense. It's like, you know, um, to hold such views is despicable, in, in a way, and unexcusable. And at the same time, he did some amazing uh, philosophy that is, you know, a, of an almost unprecedented nature, that has tremendous value. So, so this is a, this is one of the complex aspects to, to, to the Heidegger story. Where, where do you come down on this? Uh, yeah, about the same. I um, I enjoy and in some ways enjoy holding the complex tension there. If I play the game of being the Heidegger apologist, I can see that it seems to me he thought maybe the National Socialist Revolutions were an opportunity to philosophically steer a major nation, even though that didn't really pan out. And I see how he might desire to preserve the poetry of life from the hegemony of the international modernist order and side with his anti-modernist experiment. But when the modernist order becomes concentrated in the figure of the Jew, then it becomes kind of morally and emotionally intolerable for me. And I'm also deeply suspicious of a, a sort of retro romantic longing that I see in some of his writing that I think uh, aligns very nicely with cultural regression yeah uh, and so all, all of that is in the mix of how i feel about it but i also don't see much of that showing up in the actual philosophical articulations yeah 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 i think that's i think that's i think it's a healthy way to to look at it and like i say i think this is this is true with with all philosophy i mean as as we as we study it you know, how does it actually show up in our lives? Does it help us to be, does it help us to be and unfold, uh, you know, our nature as human beings? Does it, does it help us to be more caring? Does it help us to be more loving? Does it help us through moments of non-obviousness? You know, uh, does it help to open up important questions? So I guess, I, you know, I, I come back to that there's, I sort of evaluate all philosophy in, in these kind of pragmatic terms, like how does it actually help me to live my life? How does it help me to be a better husband? How does it help me to be a better brother and a son and uh, to be a better coach and uh, to be a better citizen? And so uh, these questions need to be, I think, uh, 
active questions, regardless of the philosopher that we're studying. And I find myself steering towards philosophers that that seem to offer something in this way. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the future of Heidegger, not in the past of Heidegger. And that's how I feel about philosophers in general. Mm. Uh, if, uh, you know, Descartes or St. Paul or Max Planck had a YouTube channel, they probably would have said a plenty of unsavory things. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I don't forgive them that, but I, I recognize that that's part of the normal human condition that you, you can't, you can't have a thinking space. That's not going to be populated by people who have unsavory elements to their character. Yeah. And that I like, I don't want to let them off the hook, but at the same time, I'm not in a position to put them on or let them off of any hooks. Like it's, I, I have no lever to do any of that. All I can do is take the things I like and see how they might move forward. Yeah. And I know that so many of the great thinkers um, were able to sort of um, focus their energy on their thinking almost at the expense of developing other aspects of themselves. And they made tremendous contributions in that way, even though what we want to do going forward is, is to actually work with all of those other parts of ourselves so that we get um, not just a smarter, but a, a wiser and a nicer and better form of being in the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the future of Heidegger is uh, still obviously being written. I mean, you know, he he has uh, there's such a, a a wealth of secondary literature that is continuing to be written every year. People are going back and unpacking uh, and re-unpacking uh, his work in light of what's unfolding in our world today, and it's it. It's got a, a richness that I, I think will that will continue to happen for a very long time, um, because of because of the questions he's asking are so fundamental, um, and what he's trying to invite us into is such a fundamental reconsideration, and a fresh look at what we are and what what is, and that's I think what is being called for. That you know, the meta crisis is calling for that. You know, it's calling for us to to challenge uh, assumptions and things we've taken for granted that that have been so apparently obvious to us that we don't even recognize them as things we're taking for granted. Mm-hmm.